Sir Crispin, wasn't it? Sir Crispin Cole, my prince. Ah, yes, apologies. I couldn't recall. Perhaps my prince recalls when I knocked him off his horse. Things all bangers all the time. All bangers all the time. Seven blessings to you, my friend, and welcome back to All Bangers, an unofficial House of the Dragon podcast where we dive deep and analyze every House of the Dragon episode, scene by scene, in fine detail, free of any spoilers from Fire and Blood. I am your host, Sir Vizzy of House of Azarion, coming to you from the stew to cover episode two, a little late this week, so without much further ado, let's get right into it. As always, join 154,000 other film and TV fans who follow me at Visualize Cinema on Instagram. Yo, we're finally up on Spotify now. So if that's how you choose to listen to the podcast, jump over to Spotify, drop a follow, drop a five-star rating. Really appreciate it. Now, before we jump in, uh, just my initial thoughts. Love the episode. Okay, I like this episode better than the first one, and I loved episode one. We got first-time director Greg Yatanis, and I thought his direction was even stronger than Sapochnik in episode one. So stoked about that. He directs two more episodes this season. I thought this episode was very Rhaenyra, Corliss-focused. Great to see my boy Corliss come into the fold more. Ryan Condal is doing a very good job at building the Crab Feeder as this ominous villain. So stoked to see that. So this is very much a set uh, setup episode. But if you think back to Thrones, uh, setup episodes were some of the best episodes of the series. So if the formula works, you know, don't break it. And what I love about this episode in particular is every scene matters. Every line matters. There, there's there's no fluff. I've seen a few complaints about how the show is slow. But if you go back to the first uh, three episodes of Thrones and then rewatch House of the Dragons first three episodes after next week and you say it's slow, if this show feels slow, it's because scenes are longer. They're filled with more dialogue. Uh, We're building characters. We're thickening the plot. That's what made Thrones season one through four the greatest seasons of television ever. Like Season three and four are considered masterpieces. So if you say it's slow, I say go back to the OG OG, uh, show and, and that's what slow really feels like, especially in these first few episodes. But this is very much uh, setting up the show and 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 Condal is is doing a good job at being very ambiguous as to who who's going to side with who uh, when it comes to Team Black versus Team Green. I think he's doing a great job with that. But with this episode in particular, we were drawn into Rhaenyra's perspective, which I think just elevates the storytelling overall. So those are my initial thoughts. Love the episode, especially the back half of the episode. But let's dive in and analyze each scene and look for the subtext and. Let's try to anticipate the next moves these characters will make moving forward. So here we go. House of the Dragon, Season 1, Episode 2, titled The Rogue Prince, written by Ryan Condal, directed by Greg Yatanis. Here's the description. Rhaenyra oversteps at the small council. Viserys is urged or urges to secure the succession through marriage. Damon announces his intentions. Okay, so... Before we dive into scene one, let's talk about the opening credits, of course. Uh, called it last week, said we get them. And I got to tell you guys, not a fan. Not a fan. Okay, so we get the OG theme, 
And I saw people complain about it. Some people loved it. Some people didn't like it. I happen to be in the middle. Um, I think the Thrones theme is too iconic not to have in front of every Game of Thrones property. But I think Ramin's Targaryen theme is so strong, you could have done something different here that could hype us up. But I think this was Condal and HBO execs playing it smart and playing it safe because you want to establish that connection with casual fans who represent probably 80 to 90% of the viewing audience. By the way, we just got that number back from Sunday's episode. It's 10.2 million over uh, episode one was 9.9 million. So crept up a little bit through word of mouth. Uh, biggest viewed episode this year, uh, which is which I'm stoked about. Um, but I get why they stuck with it. You know, because of that, they probably knew their audience was more casual. Um, so you want to have that, you want to bridge that connection from Game of Thrones over to House of the Dragon. So I get that. What I didn't like with regards to using the theme music again was how they cut out sections of it to speed up the intro. If you, if you go back and you'll notice that. You'll notice when they make cut. It's interesting. Thro the Thrones intro was longer. I suspect, I suspect because of the creative on screen had to cover more ground, more houses, like all over the map from Essos over to Westeros, right? From the north to the south. And that's another issue I have with the opening theme there. The creative didn't do it for me. They hired the team who did season eight. Love that. I said last last uh, podcast episode, I wanted them to do that. But here's the issue with the creative, okay? Number one, it's too dark. Number two, the camera swings around way too fast. It's hard to focus in on all the details. Number three, we can't even decipher what the icons are. They're not sigils. So I guess they're supposed to represent both king and queen, but it's hard for us to understand what their icons even represent or who they represent. Listen, I like the idea. I thought the execution was poor, okay? Uh, I thought the execution didn't work to establish the plot architecture the way that Game of Thrones opening did. Now, for those of you who were like, cool, but like, what am I actually looking at? Listen, I was right there with you, okay? But, uh, you know, a few days passed, you realize, okay, it's the Targaryen bloodline. It represents, it's represented on an old model of Old Valyria, uh, similar to the model in Viserys' chambers. It starts with, the Doom of Valyria. Then I think it flows to Aegon the Conqueror all the way down the line of kings. The last icon we're, we see is supposedly Rhaenyra. Um, so I, I hope Connell and company look at the feedback for the opening and switch that up next season. Not bad. Not great either. Like, I, I don't care to sit through that sequence the way I did with, with Thrones. Right? So moving forward here, um, we get the opening scene on the beachfront, on the step zones, on the beach. This speech is infested with crabs. Calling card of Kragas Drahar, the crab feeder. Really, really good use of body horror here. We got screams every direction on the beach. Really just building that anticipation of the crab feeder. And I have a theory about this dude that we'll get into later. But we transition over to the small council. Small, small council over in King's Landing. Sir Ryan is dead. Viserys mentions he was ill for some time. The maester mentions he passed gently in his sleep. Hashtag Maester Conspiracy. Hashtag Viz on Maester Watch. Remember, question everything. We got Rhaenyra still pouring cups. You think she's pouring like Dornish red or like an ale, uh, ale uh, like a wine from the ABBA? The ABBA, that's my Boston accent there, ABBA. Uh, but six months later, she's still pouring cups, man. After being named the heir. Goes to show not much has changed for her. 
Corliss storms in with news that four ships, including one of his own, were destroyed off the Stepstones, and he demands the Crown to act. Otto's like, yeah, we'll compensate you. Corliss is like, bro, you know I own 80% of the wealth in the Seven Kingdoms, right? I don't need your compensation, bro. Like, I just want to seize the Stepstones by force and burn out this crab feeder. You have to think that this is uh, this is Corliss's opportunity to like relive his glory days when he was a young sea captain. Just just all around big dick energy from Corliss. He's like, what reason does the crab feeder have to fear us? He throws shade at Viserys for not doing anything about the Damon situation with him seizing Dragonstone, and apparently six months has, has passed, and Viserys hasn't done anything about it. Rhaenyra's like, yo, we have dragon riders, right? You have me, you have Rainies, even Damon. Let's show them what true power looks like. And Corliss loves it. Corliss is like, okay. This girl wants to act. This girl wants to do something. Sweet. I'm with her. But Viserys denies her. And this is the first time we see a distinct difference between how Viserys thinks and how Ray thinks. I'm just going to call her Ray. Maybe maybe I'll call her Rhaenyra. Uh, Ray. Oh, you know, I, do, I don't want to do that. Oh, Ray Skywalker. No. Bad memories. Okay, I, I can't do that. No. So Rhaenyra. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a distinct difference between how Viserys thinks and how Rhaenyra thinks when it comes to um, conflict. Otto senses Rhaenyra trying to influence the small council here and earn their favor over, over Pops, who is clearly weaker than she is when it comes to these situations. Remember, Damon called Viserys weak last episode. We see more of that here as this episode unfolds. Viserys basically sends her off and says, hey, Sir Harold is going to escort you to all the knights. Choose one of your liking. Cut to that scene. Rhaenyra really isn't impressed with the first night Sir Harold presents her to replace Sir Ryan on the Kingsguard. Rhaenys looks on, but Rhaenyra asks a great question. She's like, okay, how many of these knights have seen real combat experience? Which is just another window into how strategic Rhaenyra can think, even at age 15, right? Harold presents uh, Sir Criston. Rhaenyra is smitten and learns he fought in the Doris Marches. But this was interesting too, and, and we'll see how choosing Sir Criston plays out in the future. But uh, Dear Otto, as Viserys calls him, checks her with some political talk about keeping the other houses happy by appointing one of them to fill the position, not some lowborn nobody from Dorne with no wealth or nobility, right? But uh, she checks Otto back with, my father should be defended by a man who knows real combat. But did she pick Sir Kristen for her father or did she pick Sir Kristen for herself when she ascends the Iron Throne? You have to think she wants to build a relationship now so that by the time she does sit on the throne, she has somebody who is truly loyal to her, no matter what designs the small council comes up with, whether it be this one or uh, another small council she appoints. But you got to love the smug look she gives Otto when she says, should he not? Right, I love that. Millie Alcock really coming into her own here with every scene, really going to miss her when they age up the girls and jump in the timeline. Maybe we'll get a flashback and see her again. But Sir Kristen is going to get caught up in all of this. And he's going he's gonna to get caught up in the Game of Thrones. And I'm excited to see how it unfolds. So we cut to Viserys in his chambers, uh, telling Allison about Valeria. Uh, as we hover over the model of old Valeria, we learn the ancient city was built into the side of an active volcano where the greatest families of the city drew their magic from. We're spending a lot of time talking about Valeria here in these first two episodes. I'm wondering if it's some sort of tripwire to gauge interest in a potential Valeria show. They're really leaning into it here, and I'm here for it. You know, That would be something I'd be eager to see. But what we do see presently on the show is how Viserys evades 
this reality of his reign, right? He'd rather stay in his chambers playing pretend king and thinking about the magic of the past than the day-to-day duties of being king. He's really evasive here. He's very very dismissive. It's been six months. He hasn't proactively looked for a bride. If it were any other king, they would have had a rotation of suitors at the ready. But Viserys doesn't have the will to make decisions. He's waiting for somebody to make them for him. But Alicent plays on his affection for history. It's hard to get a read on Alicent. It's a real credit to Emily Carrey uh, Carey as an actor. Uh, People already are dunking on Alicent on Twitter. Huge testament to what Carrey is doing with the role. But Viserys drops the stone dragon. Bad omen. Thematic symbolism of the realm breaking. The symbolism of Viserys. A dragon breaking. He's a broken man. That's just good storytelling by Condal. Love that. Allison picks it up, and we get a moment of tension between the two. Viserys looks at her, and she sort of looks down in a way, probably you know picking at her nails, batting her eyes. Again, hard to read on what she's doing, what she's thinking. Is she going through with Otto's plan, or is she truly anxious here? We don't really know. It's been six months at this point. They clearly haven't had sex. Otherwise, she would have gave him fuck eyes. But instead, she kind of like looks down, looks away, all nervous. But then we get a gaze from Allison while Viserys looks away, where it looks like she believes that she's in control of the conversation. She believes she's steering the conversation. Like when Viserys asks, asks if she's been telling Rhaenyra about their conversations, go back and watch the look on Allison's face there. To me, it read, boom, got him. Took six months, but I got him. If you read between the lines here, there's like a vibe of like pride about her. We cut to Allison and Rhaenyra in the Sept. And yeah, that, that scene led into the vibes I was feeling in the Sept between Allison and Rhaenyra. It's almost as if Allison believes she knows something Rhaenyra doesn't. Like, yo, your dad likes me. And that's why in this scene... I felt a lot of motherly vibes from Allison. Super interesting, man. The way she directs Rhaenyra in this scene. Remember, Rhaenyra doesn't come to the Sept. She doesn't know what to do. She's like a fish out of water. But this is familiar to Allison because she comes here to pray for her mother. Right? Where there is comfort, there is confidence. There's confidence to direct and command a conversation, an interaction. So we're inside this sept and watch the body language of Allison very, very closely. She's leading, right? Rhaenyra is following. The way she asks, what if your father were to remarry? She picks up the candle and turns to Rhaenyra. Notice her dress, okay? Look at her dress. It's probably one of her mother's. Look at how she has her hair. Very mature. Her earrings, her whole costume, and how that influences her body posture and tonality. To me, that screams, this is my test to see how much of a mother I can be to you. Which is weird to think about, right? But again, when Viserys asks her if she had been telling Rhaenyra about their conversations, I think that was the light bulb moment she was looking for. She being Allison. 
And of course, she had to tell Otto about it, right? The way Allison says, your father loves you. Like, I could be wrong here, but I feel like this was Allison testing her maternal instincts with her best friend, who could one day soon be her stepdaughter. Allison is presenting different faces to different people. And this is classic Game of Thrones. People have one face for court, another face for a lover, and another face for their friends. Rhaenyra is like, Viserys didn't choose me to be his heir. He chose me to spurn Daemon. So this shows us Rhaenyra is at least self-aware of the situation. She's smart, right? In the back of her mind, she probably knows she'll never be queen, which is why we see her try to assert her dominance uh, when she has the conversation with Rhaenys later on. But this scene in the set was gorgeous, though. The cool blues of the stone, the warm oranges of the candlelight, really great stuff by, by the director here in the DP. But we cut out to the water gardens. Viserys meets with Corlys and Rhaenys. Corlys runs down a checklist of why the crown looks weak. Rhaenys backs him up. Love Rhaenys here. And here I think Corlys has one of my favorite lines of the episode. To elude a storm, you can either sail into it or around it. But you must never await its coming. Just dropping that sea folk knowledge, yo. Basically, Corlys is saying, look, there is another way to avoid war, a better way to avoid war. How about marry our daughter? Join our families. She's 12. It's fine. It's all good. And Rainey's is a straight shooter here. She's like, there's no stronger match than Lena. Right? It's, look, it's not like we have Targaryensonly.com. But this is yet another example of how women, even young girls, are used as political pawns to build alliances in this world. Your first duty is to your family. Your second duty is to continue that family. But there's this rift between Corliss and Viserys at this point. So a marriage to Lena would fix that. So politically, it's a good idea. And Corliss and Rhaenys want a direct line to the throne. So when Lena comes of age and gives Viserys a new heir, that heir is now Valerion as much as it is Targaryen. Right? So back inside the Red Keep here, it's supper time. Not much was said here. And I think that's the point. Viserys still doesn't know how to talk to his daughter. Rhaenyra tries to explain herself. She's, she's like trying to break new ground with her father since Queen Emma's death. Viserys shuts her down. And these moments are just fueling aggression inside of Rhaenyra that we see later on in the episode. She said in the set that she wants Viserys to see her, her as more than just his little girl. But right now, that's not happening for her. And asking for permission just isn't working. But we cut inside Viserys' chambers. Uh, she's enjoying a warm, crackling fire and a maggot massage. We see the pinky he cut on the throne in episode one six months ago has now festered. And his entire finger is rotting away. Pot of maggots should suffice. But my thought was, dude, what if somebody is, is putting poison on the blades on the throne? What if the maesters are, are sneaking into the throne room and just poisoning every blade? And that's why... Every wound, every cut he has starts to fester and become worse over time. I definitely wondered that. Viserys tells Otto and the Maester that Corlys proposed the Lady Lena as a suitor. We have Maester Melos and Otto playing good cop, bad cop here. They're running a game on Viserys here. And this is what Damon warned would happen in episode one. And this felt very rehearsed. Like, yo, if Corlys tries to pull one over on us, this is how we respond. You say it's a good idea. Okay, I'll say it's a bad idea and we'll confuse him into what he does best. Indecision. So Otto tries to incept the idea 
into Viserys that it's a bad idea to marry Corlys's daughter. And he says that Corlys seeks to get the better of him. And Melos looks over to Otto after he he says his bit. He's like, yo, you know, screw Rhaenyra. Don't worry about Rhaenyra. You're the king. You have to further your line. He looks over to Otto and sig- signals him like, yo, I said my piece. Fuck, man, we rehearsed this like months ago. What are you doing? Otto comes in. He says, it's hard to replace a wife, right? It's even harder to replace a wife for duty's sake. And that's why I think marrying Elena, that, that's what I think marrying Elena would be for, for Viserys. It would be for duty. Whereas with Alicent, it wouldn't just be for duty. They've already been spending time together for half a year now, and Otto knows this. He's been working his daughter into the equation this entire time. So here he is. He wants to deflect Corliss's proposal so Alicent is the only one on Viserys's mind. And he's the he and and he's the hand, right? And Alicent's the daughter of, of, of the hand, the daughter of a trusted friend, dear Otto, as Viserys calls him, right? But the next day, we get Viserys and Lena walking in the water gardens as Corlys watches on. Our first Lena-centered scene. Love it. She's a key player in the game to come. She'll be a favorite, fan favorite, no doubt. I love 12-year-old Lena here, right to the point. What was it like riding the Black Dread? And yo, where the fuck can I find Vagar? Since she's half Targaryen, she has dragon blood in her, right? Rhaenys is her mother. She's like, okay. Dad told me to say this, but before I, before I do that, I'm going to ask this. One for Dad, one for me, right? Lena stops. She's like, all right, where the, where the fuck is Vagar? Where can I find Vagar? Then we get Lena. She stops. She's like, all right, it's time. Don't fuck this up. Remember what Dad told me to say. It would be a great honor to join our houses as they were in old Valeria. I would give you many children of pure Valerian blood so that we might strengthen the royal line and the realm. And you can see how uncomfortable Viserys is here. And I imagine... Patty Considine felt uncomfortable as well. I'm sure everybody watching felt uneasy as well. And that's the point. I mean, we all felt uneasy when 90-year-old Walder Frey was sinking moonshots with his daughter in the original show, right? It's no different here. Wayne is like, I'll give you many children when I come of age, but my mother told me I don't have to bed you until I'm 14. Viserys is like, son of a bitch. But we get Rhaenyra. She watches over the balcony, walks past Rainey's. And we get one of my favorite scenes in this episode. Major Queen of Thorn vibes here from Rainey's. So she basically says, look, I don't want to marry off my 12-year-old daughter. Of course it bothers me. But this is the way the world works, girl. And I'm just playing the Game of Thrones. Rhaenyra thinks she's special here. She thinks she's different from Rainey's. She's like, look, these lords actually bent the knee to me. Rainey's checks her like, oh yeah? Like, you remind your father's men of that every time you pour their cups? Again, we see... Rhaenyra here, she's very naive. She's trying to force the world to work for her. But Rainey serves her up the truth, and Rhaenyra needs to hear every word. She'll tell you what you need to hear, Rhaenys. Not what you want to hear. She's like, look, your father will take an heir, and what you think you have locked up right now? Dream on, darling. Right? I think she would have made an excellent queen, Rhaenys. And I think if Jaehaerys chose her, we may have never had a dance to begin with, and history could have gone a lot differently for the Targaryens. Eve Crush... Uh, Eve crush. Eve best crushed this scene, man. Like, Rainey's was challenging Rhaenyra here and letting her, letting her know that she's just a placeholder. Just great stuff. Great stuff from, from Connell and the writing team. And, of course, from Millie Alcock and Eve Best. But we get Viserys. He meets with Alicent for lunch and tells her Lord Corliss has offered her the hand of Lady Lena. 
Again, just just watch this scene with Allison. Study her micro expressions. Study how her eyes dart up and then dart down. Look, she's playing the game. She's playing the game. Now it cuts to Allison's fingers. And I thought it was interesting because they don't look as wrecked as they did in episode one. Maybe she's not as nervous anymore around Viserys. Maybe she feels more confident she can pull whatever this is off for House Hightower and Otto. But she's still finicky with her nails. She must have been soaking them in some like milk of the poppy or some shit. She presents a gift to, uh, to, to Viserys. It's the dragon he dropped earlier in the episode. Allison had it mended. She fixed the dragon. And I think it's probably in this moment Viserys thinks, hmm, Allison. Yeah, could work. It's sort of emblematic of Allison working on Viserys and putting him back together again. And, you know, it's emblematic of where the two of them could go together. Oh, she fixed my dragon. Could she be the key to fixing my family? Could she give me a dragon in the form of a baby, right? Could she restore my bloodline and give me an heir? Otto comes in and says, yo, we got a problem. Shot lingers on Allison looking over at her father. We cut to the small council chamber. It looks like Damon snuck into King's Landing and stole one of the eggs from the dragon pit during the night. And he left a note that said, Dear Darla, I hate your stinking guts. You make me vomit. You are scum between my toes. Ugh, love, alpha, alpha. Nah, but I love Damon's letter, man. My boy's just packing insult on insult. He's such a little shit. There's a lot of ways you can chop this up and try to figure out why Damon stole the egg and wrote the letter. Obviously, it was premeditated. He wrote the letter before he stole the egg, and he dropped it off in the Red Keep's mailbox and flew back to Dragonstone. He does all of this to try to get his brother to come visit him. And everything in this letter is a lie. It reminded me of the pink letter in the books. He's like, yo, I'm about to marry. Wedding's in two days. Wife is with child. We wanted an egg in the cradle so that my son can bond with it. Now, if you're not a book reader, uh, this isn't a spoiler or anything, but Targaryen babes sleep with newly, uh, I would say newly hashtags, sleep with eggs in their cradle and are said to bond with the egg through dragon dreams. So by the time that they grow up, the Targaryen child can mount their dragon as early as they age like four. And I think I think that was the youngest dra- dragon rider. I forget. But I think Rhaenyra claimed Cyrax when she was seven and wrote her for the first time. But yeah, that's how it works. But none of what Damon writes is true, as we come to find out. It's pure provocation. Corlys is like, yo, the realm is watching. Otto's like, he's stolen a dangerous weapon he could eventually use against us. Rhaenyra asks, which egg was it? Which one did he take? Turns out he took Dreamfire's egg, the same egg Rhaenyra chose for baby Balon. Obviously, Damon had to have remembered that Rhaenyra chose that egg. And this kind of goes into my theory on why this whole situation unfold that I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. But Damon also probably knew that Otto would come as well. Viserys is like, okay, fuck this. I'm going. I'll bring him back here myself. I don't even think Viserys believes he can do that. But he just acts on a whim. He's trying to compensate. Otto stops him, reminds him that Damon is unhinged. Send me instead, he says. You have to think that Otto thinks that this is an opportunity to gain one over on Corliss with the whole like Lena proposal. So he's like, stay here. I'll handle this. I got this. You have to maybe, okay. You have to think that Otto probably thinks, he probably thinks, okay, I can't let Damon and Viserys reconcile. If they do, these past six months have been for nothing. 
And Damon probably predicted this too. Think of when Otto says to steal the egg is to declare war on your king when we're on the bridge scene. I'm jumping ahead a little bit right here. But think about when he says that. To steal the egg is to declare war on your king. And Damon's like, wonderful. He knows Viserys ain't shit. He would never declare open war on his brother. He's like, wonderful. Okay, sure. Yeah, that's totally what's going to happen, right? Sure, Otto. Knew you would come, though. So this is why I said there are so many ways you can interpret this act by Damon. On one hand, he wants to test his brother's resolve. Does Viserys have the will to act against him? Or maybe he just wants to get his brother up to Dragonstone so that he can talk to him and get back in his good graces and, and, and come back to King's Landing. Maybe he asks, okay, like, how's, uh, how's everything holding up, man? How's the council? That's one way to think about it. Or I have not seen anybody talk about this yet, but this is, this is how I, I see the scene. He knows Viserys is too weak to show. So the letter and stealing the egg was all to provoke Rhaenyra to come. Did he do all of this just to see Rhaenyra? Because we learned Missaria can't give him a child. She said she made sure that she would never endure childbirth again when she talks to Damon after the bridge encounter. Like, we know he loves his niece. Was this all a test for her to see if she has the will to act? Because if she shows, Damon learns something about Rhaenyra's willingness to get shit done. Something Viserys does not have. And this excites Damon. This was how I read that scene. This whole mummer's farce, as Otto puts it, it wasn't to provoke a war or provoke a king. It was to see Rhaenyra. Remember, Damon loves his family. And he especially loves his niece. But I'm jumping ahead of myself there. Allison suits Otto up. He's like, when I'm gone, are you going to see the king? Are you going to see the king tonight? He looks at her nails, and you can see Allison Loki fucking hates him for what he's making her do. But you have to think it would probably take a day to get to Dragonstone from King's Landing. Um, they left in the middle of the night, which makes sense, you know, under cover of darkness, in case Damon has any spies in the city. But we cut to the aerial of Dragonstone. Love this. We see the same beach Danny landed on. Looks like it's just rocks right now. We zoom past the gate and we see the infamous bridge, the causeway that separates the castle from the beachhead. And Dragonstone has never looked better, man. The sun is setting. We get this mist rising from the ocean. It looks hot. It looks humid, which is on brand for the Targaryens, right? They, they thrive in the heat. The island is alive. It has a Targaryen on the, on the dragon throne. It looks warm. It looks tropical. So love that. Great detail from the production team. We never saw this look in, in Thrones. Most likely because it was abandoned. Dragonstone was abandoned ever since the Targaryen house fell. And Danny and her brother Viserys fled Westeros to survive Robert's rebellion. So it made sense that the castle felt cold in that, in that show. But some beautiful cinematography here. And Ramin's score was just phenomenal. Very, very eerie. Very... It has some horror vibes to it, right? Love that. Damon and his gold cloaks and Masara, they meet Otto and his detachment on the bridge that consists of Maester Melos, Sir Harold, Sir Kristen, and some other red shirts. Uh, Damon welcomes Otto. He's basically like Joel in The Last of Us Part Two. He's like, yo, say whatever speech you got rehearsed and let's get this, let's get this shit over with, bro. Damon jests Sir Kristen, calling him Sir Crispin. And Otto's like, Damon, 
This is a pathetic show. What do you hope to accomplish? You look like a sad boy who just wants attention. But Damon's cunning. Damon can be three steps ahead of everybody. And I think we see that here. He's like, you've come for the egg. Here it is. And I was waiting for it because Otto kept on talking and talking. Damon's like, say something else. Say something else. I fucking dare you. And Otto's like, your unborn son will die and your whore will die. Damon unsheaths the sword. Probably signals Caraxes in his mind. And Caraxes climbs over the hill. We'll get a great look at him. Hashtag throat goat. We'll give Nancy Reagan a run for her money. Caraxes sounds like an old 1920s Tommy Shelby type motor car. Right? It's just about to break down. Love that creative decision. Because Caraxes is older. And that neck boy. Whew, that neck long. So it makes sense that his vocal cords aren't as strong. Because it takes more time for the sound to exit his mouth. Which is why we probably get that broken down engine sound when he screams. Love that. Rhaenyra shows up on Cyrax and Damon gives her a look like, okay, this is what I wanted. Again, go back and watch the scene. This is what I wanted. And we get Rhaenyra and Damon having a spat in High Valerian on the bridge. Rhaenyra's like, you're about to have a child? And Damon's like, yeah, one day. And this confirms the letter was all a lie. Sorry, he's like, fuck this, I'm out. Rhaenyra's like, look, I'm right here, uncle. I'm the reason you're not the heir. Kill me. And we get the sick dolly shot that just moves in and pans up just ever so slightly on Damon. And he's looking at Rhaenyra, almost like he's proud of her. He walks away, tosses her the egg. And this is why I believe this was all a test for Rhaenyra, not Viserys. Damon's not stupid. He knows there is no way Rhaenyra will become queen. The lords of Westeros won't allow that to happen. She's still fucking pouring cups six months later. So he writes the letter, steals the egg. He provokes her to Dragonstone. He tosses her the egg. And he makes her feel like she's won. And this was Damon's plan. This is my theory. This was Damon's plan. To give Rhaenyra a dub. To show her, hey, this is how easy it can be to win if you're with me. This was a dub for Damon. Didn't look like that on the screen, but it was. He learned more about Rhaenyra's resolve, how she takes initiative, and how weak Viserys truly is. And he planted the seed in Rhaenyra's mind of what life could be like if she joined him. That's how I read that scene. But Damon walks back into the castle. He leans on Masaria like, whew, boy, that was a lot, huh? She's like, you told everybody we were to be married? What the fuck, man? And that I was with child? I have to make like a Masaria segment of the week. Like, oh, I'm stretching here. Like, I'm wondering like what should, what we should call it. If you have any ideas, DM me on Instagram at Visualize Cinema for a Masaria segment of the week. Because if you listen to episode one, um, you know I'm not the biggest fan of Sonoya Mizuno. She is by far the weakest part of the show. Like, what the hell is she doing with her accent? It looks like every time she speaks, you know, like a voiceover is dubbed over her because she couldn't nail it live. She has this French French accent. Like her voice, does, her, her voice does not match her look. Anyways, that's all I'll say about that. Moving forward here, almost wrapped up. Viserys is playing with a toy dragon that Allison mended. 
And I think it's in this moment where I believe he decides on Allison to become his queen. Because we see in the next scene, he summons Lionel Strong to the council chambers to look for a reason not to wed the lady Lena. Late is the hour, so it must have weighed heavy on his mind and he couldn't sleep if he didn't get an answer. He's just looking for somebody to openly suggest Allison as a wife so it doesn't come off as his idea and he can sell that to Rhaenyra. Like, oh, like, Sir Lionel had this idea. What do you think about it? Right? That type of shit. But Lionel Strong is great here. That actor, he really impressed me in this scene. He's a straight shooter and he gives Viserys his, his honest opinion. He tells him, look, you should wed the Lady Lena. It makes sense. The king's guard comes in, interrupts, and tells Viserys Rhaenyra has returned from Dragonstone. Viserys is like, what the shit? And we cut to Rhaenyra walk, and you can see she has a little pep in her step as she, she walks to meet her father. Rhaenyra's like, look, I got the egg back without any bloodshed. You think Otto could have done that without me? Fuck no. And you could sense he's almost proud of her. Like, he's almost relieved that she said that so he could avoid confrontation with his daughter, who already feels estranged to him. He tells Rhaenyra, you know, you know what's expected of me. And Rhaenyra's like, you are the king. Your first duty is to the realm. Now, everybody up until this point has told Viserys this. You are the king. You need to take a new wife. But I think now that he's heard it from Rhaenyra, that opens the door for him to make his decision. And this is where he truly fails as a father. Rhaenyra is coming off a big dub, like the biggest dub of her life, down in Dragonstone. She's feeling herself, right? So she's like, okay, dad, like, yeah, it's okay. You can go ahead. You can remarry. I'm good. You know, maybe, maybe she's thinking, look, either way, I'm good. You know, I can go with Uncle Damon. And Viserys mistakes this as, Phew, okay, good. Now that I know she'll be fine with Alicent. Except he never mentioned Alicent. That's the last thing on her mind. She doesn't even know they've been meeting in secret for the past six months. And that's how Viserys fails his daughter here. So here we are, Viserys overlooking King's Landing, looking out to the dragon pit. He remembers Alicent mending his dragon. It's time to get the line of Targaryens back on track. He smiles, the council enters, Otto is already there with Alicent. Rhaenyra's on the opposite side of the table. I was wondering why Rhaenyra didn't think it was weird that Alicent was there by Otto. She probably thought again, okay, no way in hell would my father choose Alicent. But Viserys says he's decided on a new wife. And Coros is like, well, shit, it's about time, playboy. Leave the planning to me. Viserys looks over to Rhaenyra, and she smiles in support until she realizes, dad's staring at me a little too long. Wait, no. And the smile fades, and Viserys turns to Alicent, picking at her fingers while Otto smirks. You knew Viserys told Otto beforehand. I don't know if Otto would have told Alicent. Maybe he did. He could have just said, the king wants you at, at, at the council today. Alicent looks up at Rhaenyra. Rhaenyra shifts her gaze from her father over to Alicent in shock. Alicent's looking back like, I swear I didn't mean to. Your dad's just such a snack. Just kidding. Out of that last part. But you get the point. Corliss stands up like, you done fucked up now. Otto looks at Corliss like, checkmate, bitch. And Rhaenyra storms out. Wild scene. And we cut to Corliss over on Driftmark. He's giving a rundown of House Valerion. Camera pans. We find out he's talking to Damon. 
Corlys says he and Damon are the realm's second sons, passed over, and he wants to form an alliance to fight the threat in the Stepstones. We cut back to the beach we saw in the beginning of the episode in the opening scene. The crab feeder is just torturing and crucifying his victims. We learn the crab feeder is backed by the free cities that wish to see Westeros weakened. And I was wondering here, I was wondering if the Iron Bank would be involved. Not sure. I mean, Corliss is the richest man in the world. He probably has contacts at the Iron Bank. Maybe somebody went rogue at the bank and is betting on the crab feeder to disrupt the crown. Maybe the crab feeder met with the Iron Bank, explained his plans to cripple the shipping lanes to crush House Valerion's coin, or maybe to even steal a dragon egg. How he can even play how 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 he can even the playing field. Maybe they know the Iron Throne. Maybe maybe the people at the Iron Bank know the Iron Throne is vulnerable with the, with Viserys on it and no heir. And so they back the crab feeder after hearing his plans. Something to think about. But the crab feeder looks dope, man. Rocking a real weather face vibe. I froze in on the last frame, and I think he's wearing an OG harpy mask. If you remember the Sons of the Harpy from the original show, it would make sense that masks evolve, of course, over 200 years. Uh, so this could be an older version of the harpy mask. It's broken on the bottom, revealing that dude has grayscale. And I mentioned that I had a theory up top uh, in the episode about the crab feeder. Here it is. I believe that... The crab feeder is the first person to sail to Westeros and inadvertently plague its people with grayscale. Like a John Connington theory from the books. And we see it played out with Jorah in Game of Thrones when he gets grayscale and he comes over to Westeros and he's treated at the Citadel. But uh, yeah, I think that that's something that could possibly happen. Um, and I think the crab feeder is going to go for the dragon egg. But... We cut back and forth between Damon and the Crab Feeder. Roll credits. Great episode. So we should be getting some Stepstones action next week. I know we we age up or we time skip, I think, three years, three or four years uh, in episode three. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, that wraps episode two. Fire episode. No pun intended. Uh, I think we're going to start ramping up things starting next week. Definitely. We're going to get some battle action next next week. And there's so many battles in the story, so I'm interest, interested to see how they shoot them. One of the brilliant things about Thrones and even Vikings, that show Vikings, shout out to Vikings, uh, was every battle that was on the show involved a different element or strategy. So I'm hoping House of the Dragon continues this tradition with Sapochnik as one of the showrunners, um, you know, with, with him as one of the showrunners, I think it's safe to say that that will be the case as he always handled the majority of battle episodes, uh, at least later on in the throne seasons. So, um, yeah, man, I mean, they're two for two so far. And I, I like this episode even better than the premiere. In fact, I probably love this episode. And I think each episode will get stronger as it goes on. You know, you, you think of starting anything, right? Starting anything, whether it be writing a paper or the first episode of a show who had an audience of 20 million people watch it and hate it the last time it was on three years ago with the Thrones finale, right? It's difficult to start anything. And I think Ryan Condal, Miguel Sapochnik, and the entire cast especially, they've come in, they've swung for the fences, and I think they're crushing it. I think they hit it out of the park, especially with these first two episodes to really establish what we're in for with the show. And Ryan Condal is... He's really embracing the murkiness of George's writing in Fire and Blood. So in the book, George doesn't decide what is true. 
he writes several versions of each event and he leaves it up to the audience to interpret what is true and what connects with each other. So it was a tall task for Ryan Condal to come in and adapt this because he has to decide what is true. George presents three different possible realities in the book for every event, but it's up to Ryan and Miguel to know the war inside and out and to give us one reality on the show. So credit goes to those guys for really bringing Thrones back to form in these first two episodes. Now, it's going to be interesting. This is the biggest show in the world, two weeks running, and I'm going to be interested to see how big Amazon fudges the numbers on Rings of Power to act like they're going to compete with House of, Dra- House of the Dragon. House of the Dragon has really sucked the life out of that show. And it just goes to show, man, like if you're a showrunner that's also a super fan and respects the lore, respects what's on the page, and you focus on story instead of visuals, you can capture the attention of tens of millions of people and become a part of the pop cultural zeitgeist. But that'll do it for me, guys. I will be back next Wednesday with House of the Dragon Episode 3. Hey, if you made it this far, drop a five-star rating review on Apple Podcast. Drop a five-star rating on Spotify. It would really mean a lot to me. I'm averaging about seven hours every episode just putting this podcast breakdown together. So I'm truly grateful for every review that comes in. And let's continue to blow this thing up, man, and make it a stable podcast for any TV film fan. Uh, for them to listen to but you guys and gals will always be the abp ogs so follow me on instagram at visualize cinema shoot me a dm and say what's up yes chef heard chef thank you chef later later